Hello, and welcome to Tech Connects. Dice's podcast where we dig into topics on tech hiring, recruiting, and careers that matter to you. I'm your host, Nick Kolakowski. I'm going to talk to great guests every month about the current state of the tech careers world, including taking the temperature of the tech job market, the hottest tech skills, what companies are doing to attract and retain technology professionals in a historically tight market, and much more. Our next guest is Jeff Spector, who's co-founder and president of Carrot, a cloud-based platform for technical interviewing. Carrot conducts technical interviews on behalf of companies, making sure to align the interview process with the client's needs. It's designed to help companies rapidly scale their technical interviewing and, ultimately, their hiring. I wanted to talk to Jeff because Carrot recently released its latest hiring trends report, which offers a ton of insight into how tech leaders are approaching hiring right now. What are companies using to source their candidates, and how are they valuing the engineers that they bring aboard? Let's jump into the discussion. So thank you for being on and for taking the time. Um, Obviously, Carrot is an interviewing platform uh, aimed at technologists and others in the space. And so I am deeply interested in talking to you because, um, you know, tech is what we do and and all the insights that you can give into the hiring and interviewing market and so on, um, I think would be of a really great utility to our listeners. So thank you for being on. Yeah, great. Glad to be here. Great. Carrot is releasing a hiring trend report. And one of the things that sort of jumped out at me as I was going through it was that based on the the data that you accrued from these these tech leaders that you interviewed, um, the tech leaders are discussing how certain top performers deliver three, four, five times the value of the total compensation to an organization. Um, And that jumped out at me because for years we've had this myth of the, maybe it's not a myth, of the 10x developer, the developer who is so extraordinary, they're doing the work of 10 other developers, they're plowing through, they're amazing, they they can change a startup into a giant tech corporation seemingly overnight. Um, But it also made me wonder, like when we talk about the value that's brought in by developers and how leaders perceive that value and the multiples of that value. I mean, how does an organization actually determine that? Like what differentiates them from performers who might deliver, say, just one X value or or two X value or something like that? Yeah. um, I I think when we're talking about the 10 X engineer, that's not, I don't think people are actually using that as an accurate multiple of, you know, how much value they're bringing the, the organization. I think it's, it's kind of a term used to describe someone who's, who's adding outsized value uh, relative to maybe their peers or to the market. Um, and I don't think there's actually like, I mean, companies are trying to measure engineering effectiveness and things, but I don't think they're accurately trying to measure down to like individual engineers what's the multiple of like their salary or something. Right. So I think it's just kind of a, an indicator of, you know, that this person adds a lot of value and what we, when in our work and when we've been talking to engineering leaders, um, you know, generally what we've, we've seen them talk about the, the types of employees that add significant value are a, a couple of things. So one would be like individual contributors who can solve very difficult tasks, right? They have some combination of ability plus maybe like a deep understanding of a specific space um, that they can go really deep to, into. And someone will turn to them and say, Hey, I, you know, I can't solve this problem. You're an expert here. Can you help me um, break through on this problem? So that's, that's one type. I think the second type are, you know, managers or team leads who make their teams more effective by, uh, you know, c- better communication through collaboration. Maybe they help people keep focus. They can um, set architecture and the vision and things. And so it's basically ensuring that everyone else on their team is incredibly productive. 
And then I think the third one is just people who are more productive, right? You have people who actually can just produce more high quality code and, and do it better than others. And so, you know, those ones will just uh, produce more than their peers. Um, and, you know, I, I think when we, it, it's interesting to think about the 10X developer, because I think you, you know, relying on individual like acts of heroism is not, not a sustainable strategy of like, hey, I have this one person, can they continually hit home runs? Um, and what we saw in our report, which was interesting, um, is that, you know, you may be better off with like a team of three to four X folks that are really good. Um, and what we, we found is that the highest performing and like the most confident engineering leaders, the, the ones who felt like their team were, were performing the best, they put a much higher multiple on their average engineer um, oh, okay. than the other teams. So it kind of to us spelled, you know, ensuring that you have a very high quality hiring process that, you know, you don't have any low performers that get into the team because it's a really huge morale hit when you are looking around and you're maybe the only one or one of a very few top performers and, you know, somebody else who's there slacking off or just not creating the same, you know, near the value you are is really demoralizing and probably will cause you to leave over time. Yeah. It, it, it reminds me a little bit of um, what Steve Jobs said, where, you know, you have to continually keep hiring A players because as soon as you start hiring B players, then there's sort of this, he saw it as sort of this collapse where then all of a sudden you had C players and D players. And maybe he was a little harsh on that, but I mean, there is sort of maybe, you know, as you said, something to be said for sort of wanting to like kind of maintain standards and keep them high. Yeah. I think there's a multiplier effect, right? Like they, that it's, it's when you have more and more people and you see everybody else performing really well, you're going to want to uh, continue to perform. It's kind of what you're talking about. is kind of the reverse of the, you know, if you just get 1% better a day within like a year, you're going to be 10 times better at whatever the task you're doing. Um, I, I do think that there is a, you know, when you kind of let, uh, let, like let someone into the barn, you know, that, that isn't really uh, performing well, it does, it does have a really negative impact on their work and the productivity there, but also everyone else that they, uh, that they work with. Given, given that it's sort of intense need for talent and, and all of those pressures and everything else. Um, the other thing that jumped out at me in your report that sort of aligned with that was the, the weakening in the use of sourcing agencies and referrals. And that really jumped out at me because a lot of the tech companies that I speak with are very intense about like they're using their sourcing companies and their referrals and so on. Like, you know, they'll cling to it in an uncertain world, you know, and that's how they sort of pipeline their talent. So, I mean, given you think that it just seemed almost counterintuitive to me. I think that especially given the turbulence in the market, they rely on it more, but you're seeing less. I mean, what do you think is behind that? It was just, it, it was extraordinary to me. Yeah, I, I think a couple of things. So, so, and they're different maybe between the sourcing agencies and the referrals. So let me, let me tackle them separately. Okay. Um, the, the sourcing agency, I think as companies are just hiring less and that volume is shifting towards like larger, more stable enterprises, they tend to have large recruiting teams that can do the searches and, and they rely less on sourcing agencies. It actually isn't really economical for them. You know, they're, they're usually leaning on sourcing agencies for niche roles, not like their standard roles. Whereas if you get into startups or smaller enterprises that were getting a lot of funding in tech, you know, they're, they lean pretty heavily on sourcing agencies because they maybe don't have the team um, in place. And, and these larger enterprises also, you know, if they are hiring less and um, they want to make sure that their teams are fully utilized before they go to an outside firm. Right. So, um, I, now, you know, when things pick back up, you know, you are seeing because there were a decent amount of layoffs of, of tech recruiters that I could see maybe not, maybe sourcing agencies will pick back up if there's, you know, when the recovery happens, but also I bet contract recruiter, recruiting firms are going to pick back up because they, I know a lot of the people we talk to, a lot of the TA leaders are trying to figure out like, how do I get away from this boom and bust cycle where I hire up a bunch of people on my team and then I, you know, have to inevitably go through 
um, what is a really tough time in laying people off. And so, so I think they will be more leveraged in the future than they have been. Um, but memories are also short. So <laughs> who knows how long they're going to remember this, you know, two years from now. Um, yeah, I think, I'm oh, sorry, go ahead. No, 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 go on. No, I was just agreeing. Yeah. So for the referrals, um, you know, this is actually a trend we've seen for several years where people are moving more away from re- referrals. I think one is driven by the need to build inclusive teams. And obviously there's a lot of research out there of like, if you just hire the people, you know, and your team's not diverse to start with, it's going to be, it's going to be hard to continue to, to make headway against the, you know, diversity goals um, doing that. Um, I think also because non-tech companies are doing more of the hiring now, and they're a larger percentage of the hiring, they are actually looking for people outside of their networks. You know, they're for the first time ever, if you think about, let's just take a, a, a sector, financial services. A lot of people from financial services move around, you know, between banks and uh, insurance companies because they there's a, a knowledge they have of the business side of things. And so you do get a, a huge amount of referrals in there. But now for the first time ever, they're looking at, wow, I can get talent from the tech companies that I never had before, but I don't have networks, you know, as, as many networks into the tech companies. And so I think they're, they're relying on referrals less and because you know, there's more talent on the market. So there's more people directly applying. Um, and so then they can actually, you know, if they have systems in place to, uh, to, to screen in some of the best uh, talent that they are, that is applying directly, they can get more hires that way as well. That makes a lot of sense. Um, do you see a lot of movement in-house? I mean, the one thing that I've been not, I, I can't really nail any numbers to it, but just sort of as in the course of my travels and talking to startups and so on, it seems that even companies that don't have, necessarily a lot of resources to spin up, you know, HR and intake and things like that are, are, are at least considering kind of doing a lot of stuff in house and trying to kind of be bringing it more closely in. I mean, are, are you seeing that as well? Or is that something, am I, am I off base on that? No, I think you're right. I mean, I think whenever there's a, a heavy focus on costs, mm-hmm. right, people are going to try and do more with the resources that they have. And, you know, sourcing agencies are not cheap, right? You're going to get, you're going to the average sourcing agency's 20 to 30% of first year salary, you know, something like that. And if you're, you know, it makes sense maybe if you're hiring like a senior role where it really matters, you don't have networks there and they have a real expertise in that. I think for the the standard roles or ones that you're going to be hiring more of, right, it's even more critical for you to develop the expertise to go learn how to do that and, and build that uh, over time. And so then they just flex in, you know, people who who um, they want to lean in to, to grow in their own careers and kind of are taking a bet there. Yeah. No, that makes a lot of sense. Um, in terms of sourcing, I mean, the other thing that really jumped out at me, um, just because over the past past few years, I've written a lot about visas and things like that and, and outsourcing and near sourcing, all these trends is um, the report cited a strong hiring trend for developers in India, including multinational companies opening development hubs in the country. Um, and it struck me because at the same time I was reading your hiring report, I was also reading this other report. And I was talking to a few other developers who were talking about how the advent of ChatGPT and these other chatbots and their increased ability to generate low-level code, debug, et cetera, and things like that would potentially eliminate kind of a lot of these trends with regard to outsourcing and relying on India and things like that. Um, so it seems like, I mean, there, there's almost two sort of ideas that are kind of almost colliding together. I wonder what your thoughts were on that, because it, it just seems like two massive trends that seems about to kind of just go head to head almost. Well, I, I think the 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 trend that we're seeing in India, so so pretty much every client that we work with, every large enterprise that we work with right now is either opening up something, scaling up their India work, you know, or thinking about India or another uh, kind of 
uh, geography outside the U.S. Um, in in terms of doing their engineering work. And I think for India specifically, I think it's less about outsourcing anymore, and you know the the entry level engineers, and much more that and India is becoming a or is a center of excellence for engineering. Uh, and so you know we're seeing like of the we did a report where we listed like the top cities by performance on our interviews. Um, and India had six of the top 20, right? Hyderabad was leading the list. Um, and it was kind of right in between like London and Washington, DC. So, you know, I think it's less about hiring like low cost engineers, but they're moving over there because they're seeing it as like a, a massive market of available engineers that they can source that are higher quality. There's still obviously some uh, you know, outsourcing and things that are going on. But the shift that we're seeing is that multinational corporations are setting up like dev shops there as part of their global talent strategies versus, you know, a cost play. So I think that's the first thing on the Indian, maybe why we're seeing a, a bigger uptick. And, um, and then I think to your second point of like, you know, the fear around AI and generative AI, um, I, I feel like there's a future where it doesn't remove the need for uh, entry level or, you know, those types of programmers, it just maybe relieves some of the cognitive burden of translating like those human ideas into code. Um, and then, you know, it's the same, same, we, it's not a really like a new phenomenon. We've seen developers consult tools for a while in terms of like Stack Overflow or Google or anything like that. It's just obviously much more magnified and um, a lot, a lot, uh, a lot faster, but it's probably just going to change the nature of those jobs and not replace them, right? The, the demand for software engineers is, is going to keep growing and outpace the supply. And so what that means is that some of those firms in India or other places are probably going to have to adapt. And some of those engineers are going to have to adapt and learn different skills like prompt engineering and other things. But, uh, but I, I don't, I don't see that they're going to go away. I think they're probably just going to have to adapt. Yeah. Do you see, I mean, it, it does at carrot, are you seeing, I mean, there's also a lot of chatter among recruiters and hiring managers and so on about AI and chatbots and so on impacting the interview process and the hiring process in, in all sorts of different ways. I mean, are you, are you seeing any sort of impact from that yet? Or is it more mostly conjecture? I mean, how is, how is, how are you viewing that aspect of the market? I think there's certain companies are shying away from it altogether because there's actually new regulations and laws. Like people are afraid that, you know, AI is going to introduce a lot of bias in the hiring process um, and scale that up. And so there's some companies that are kind of like, until this thing all sorts out, you know, I want to, I want to steer clear of that and make sure there's like human beings making decisions, making sure human beings are the ones doing this. And, and I can understand every part of my hiring process and I can understand why they're, why they're doing that. The ones who are where we're seeing ones who are thinking about AI and hiring a lot of what they're, what they're asking for is like, how do I ensure that I'm actually getting a great candidate? And it's not, you know, it's not, there's no, I'm not just hiring chat GPT. Right. Um, and, and so I think that's where, you know, when we think about, for example, our interviews and how we do it, it's, it's much more about problem solving. Can you explain things to me? That's why we have human beings. You know, we have interview engineers who are there. And, and, and honestly, we don't really care in, if you use ChatGPT, just like you'd use Stack Overflow in an interview. If that's what you're going to do on the job, that's what, you know, we should, we should lean into that. What we really care about is then, can you explain what's going on? Can you help, you know, I'm going to throw another wrench in this problem. And can you actually think through why is this solution better than that solution? You know, some of our questions are, here's three or four solutions, which one's the best? That's a hard thing for a chat GBT to, to solve. So, you know, I think that's where we're really seeing, um, there's obviously like other parts of the recruiting process where how do we, how do we use AI to kind of source more efficiently and things like that. But at least in the interviewing um, part of the process, that's kind of what we're seeing right now. Do you think, I mean, 
AI gets cited as as a future challenge um, in terms of you know things that tech leaders worry about the future. I mean, what and it's sort of been dominating the conversation in in, the, in this broad based sort of way. Do you, what other kind of challenges or fears do tech leaders have kind of coming up? I mean, in terms of sourcing talent, in terms of of everything that's sort of going to play out over the next I don't know five years or so, anything like that. I mean, again, because AI seems to dominate things, so I'm interested in like what else is also sort of top of mind for them. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, the main concern right now is what you kind of talked about is that the industry is in a bit of upheaval, right? And mm-hmm. there's not, there's just uncertainty everywhere. And so um, the the landscape has just changed pretty dramatically over the last year. You know, we had 200,000 people that found themselves in a job market. Like we hadn't really seen something like that happen since 2000, the early 2000s, right? Um, to your point, nobody, nobody really understands how AI is going to impact everything. I think they're all you know, there's a lot of prognostications about what this will be, but I don't know if anybody really knows exactly like how much impact and how fast that impact is going to happen. And then people are like cutting back expenses right now. And so they're worried about like, how do I, how do I handle the amount of work I have to do without being able to hire? We see a lot of things like, you know, I can only hire contractors, but I can't hire FTEs because I'm a public company, right? Just things that are influencing like decision-making. Um, and, and I do think that AI has shaken up the world. You know, it's kind of, uh, I think one of my colleagues says it's like, it's shaken the snow globe, right? And everybody's kind of waiting for that to, to sort out. And there's just a lot of uncertainty, but I, I don't think we're in a world where like engineers are not going to matter in the future. And so like if I were you know giving advice to tech leaders, I'd probably say, you know, and invest and explore about what's going on, but don't panic. Like there's going to be a lot that changes, but we saw in this report, like there are certain things. I mean, we've been doing this report for, for about four years. And there are definitely things that stay the same report to report, which is, you know, you're still going to need great talent. You're still going to need a mission that motivates people. You know, you're going to have to provide clarity and direction. Um, The hiring processes that people that have the highest investment in their hiring processes are the ones who actually are able to make, uh, you know, more hires. The ones who are uh, building the most standardized and and inclusive hiring processes are the ones who end up with the best teams. Things like that. Those things I don't think are going to are going to change. So it's really just about being thoughtful but not panicking. Yeah. Oh, that makes tons of sense. Um, the other thing, I mean, it, it seems like a lot of the organizations that we talk to um, among engineering leaders, CIOs, CEOs, et cetera, so like a really strong culture of diversity, equity, inclusion, um, and belonging. And one of the things that was interesting in, in your report was how um, it seemed like tech leaders were citing that, you know, they had strong DEIB culture and resources in place for that. And it, it was interesting to me just because we've been running these diversity surveys of our own on our side involving tech professionals. And, you know, 20, 25% of the people we're surveying are saying in general that like, the, so, you know, about 15% are saying the resources are definitely there and they seem to be in alignment with what leadership is saying. But then there's a significant percentage who are also saying that, they, they're not necessarily sure their organizations are devoting the resources and attention necessary to making workplaces equitable. Um, so, I mean, and it sort of jumped out at me reading your report. I mean, do you think that there's potentially a gap between what leaders are perceiving and what tech professionals under them are experiencing? I mean, it just, it just seemed interesting. I mean, it's, it's such an important issue right now. I just wanted to get your, get your thoughts. Yeah, I, I think there is. I completely agree with what you're finding. I mean, we actually saw that in our, in our study as well, which is, there is a gap between how leadership views how they're doing on you know DEI initiatives and um, and their employees. Um, actually, we saw like you know CEOs thought they were doing the best, and then as you get farther away from the CEO, it gets like worse and worse, right? Um, and and so you know I, I think there's probably a couple things. One 
at least from our report, it could be that, you know, our report is focused mostly on hiring and that there could be a ball being dropped on like inclusion and things that happen after you get hired, right? That maybe, maybe they're actually doing a good job on in the hiring process. And then once somebody actually gets there, right, you know, then, then there's like a, um, a sense of belonging and all the other issues of like, how do I, how do I fit in and, and how do I, how am I welcomed and can, can I be my true self when I get to work? Right. Mm-hmm. And so there is a, there is a, a chance that that's what's happening where we're seeing some of that, but the, the, given that you're also, you're also seeing that in your survey, I'd probably, probably say it's, it's, it's more across the board that we're having this issue. And I think for us, like, you know, for DEI initiatives to be successful, it's not enough. It definitely needs C-level buy-in, but that's not enough, right? Like we need them to be on board, but that's where the work starts, not stops, right? And so, you, you know, the the, the C, C-level may say, hey, great, like I'm out there, I'm declaring it, you know, this is this is what's going on. And then actually like when they go to implement, like DEI is something that is not a single fit. Uh, it's not a silver bullet. There's no single thing you can do to really solve this. It's like a thousand things that you have to do and you have to do them really well. Um, you know, here's here's an example is that we we actually worked with a, a large retailer um, and uh, who is hiring up a tremendous amount of uh, engineers. Um, and uh, what we what we saw is that even though they had a lot of DEI initiatives and they were really focused on it and we generally felt like they were doing a really good job, like they were trying their best to do this. We could see, for example, that candidates who we interviewed who did really well on our assessment, like men and women were passed on to the next round at the same rates. Candidates who did not do well on our assessment, they were not passed through at the same rates, like they kind of were eliminated at the same rates, right? But candidates who were right on the bar of where their technical bar was, we were seeing men were being passed through at twice the rate of of women, right? And it's something that honestly, because our system allows you to tease this out and get, you know, we're really standardized and we could catch this, right? Then we were able to make progress. And within a quarter, we were able to kind of eliminate that that gap and, and close it to zero, right? But but what if you don't have as standardized or you don't have as like numerical process or something, what uh, an employee might see is just that they're hiring more men than women. They don't know why, even though that that's going on. It was so what we drilled in there was like, who's making that decision? How are they making that decision? Right. Like, let's really specifically go and attack that one part of the process that we can get more, you know, more systems across. So I think like, you know, for DEI, you have to you have to be vigilant and you also have data and you have to really like think through each time you're going to try and do this to actually have impact or else you just fall down along the way somewhere. Yeah. I imagine it can also mold the the interview process, the beginning parts of the process in a way to hopefully eliminate bias and things like that. But it would also sort of depend on an organization kind of taking a hard look at its at its interview process and sort of examining itself for that bias. And I imagine that's, I mean, everyone wants to do that, obviously, but I on a tactical level, it's probably really intense and difficult to to make that happen just that self-awareness yeah and you know i mean we we are out there constantly advocating for the things that we've learned to your point like not every organization has you know a thousand interview engineers like you know where they're watching in their performance at all times and understanding what's going on and doing tens of thousands of interviews a month that they can learn from and so there are definitely things that we've learned that we try and espouse to the industry so for example um, and and not every organization can do them, but we know that they work, right? Like, so one would be, for example, um, interviewing 24-7. So we interview, uh, you know, a, a whenever the candidate can meet. And we see that uh, women of color, especially, interview outside of nine to five hours, right? So if you want to be inclusive, you got to meet people where and when they want to interview. Um, our interview engineers don't look at resumes uh, before they go into an interview, right? And we, if you're just doing a technical assessment, why do I need to 
inform you that this person worked at Google or Amazon or any other company that then, you know, there's no reason, there's nothing that's happening in the interview that that unless you're doing like a resume review and you're really digging into their background that you need to know that. And so then there's, you know, one, you don't have pedigree bias and you don't have kind of like that in your head, but also it's not like, oh, I worked there too. Right. And now I have likability bias. Um, We tell every company to offer a redo interview. So we offer every candidate that comes through an opportunity to interview with us again, if they feel like the first performance wasn't up to their best uh, self, they didn't do as well as they could have. And so we offer it with a different interviewer and a different uh, set of questions, but the same competencies, right? And what we found is that um, underrepresented talent takes us up at 30% higher rates on the redo. Um, And we've just crossed the like 1500 higher mark. So those are like 1500 people that have gotten hired that if, if it was just their first performance, they would have actually been rejected. So we're both eliminating a false negative and you're just putting candidates at ease, right? Because if I know I have an opportunity to take another interview, then I will like be less nervous and less stressed in the er- initial interview. So there's a lot of different things that you can do in your interviewing process to kind of work and help with um, both inclusion, you know, diversity, but also just a better candidate experience. Yeah, no, that's amazing. I mean, the redo thing sounds like an amazing thing just because, I mean, there are so many people who would naturally want to do a redo, you know, and like, I mean, not everybody is feeling necessarily 100% on during their interview period. So yeah, no, that's 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 amazing. Cool. Yeah, and it came from a candidate, right? The, the, the redo actually started because a candidate like year one of Carrot wrote to us and said, oh, I really botched that. I know I could do better. Can I, can I have another shot? And we kind of had a discussion internally we're like, yeah, why, why would we not? We all, we, you know, it's a lot easier to mess up when you're <laughs> capable of doing something than to ace something that you have no idea what you're doing. Right. Yeah. And so we always tell our clients, like, you got to look at their best performance because anybody can have a bad day. Maybe they just, you know, you never know what's going on with someone's life or, or maybe it's just the, the wrong question. They didn't hear it well. Right. I mean, even in this interview, it's like, there's probably questions that you've asked that I totally fully understood hundred percent. There's other ones that are like, wait, what are you asking me? And I'm trying to figure it out in real time. Right. Um, and, and therefore I'm going to hopefully answer, you know, hopefully I'll answer them all well, but who knows? No, you answered them all well. No, that's perfect. Um, yeah, no, no, thank you. That was, that was, I mean, at the, every, every answer has been, don't worry, you, you passed completely. Great, great. Um, I know. It's always interesting to take a top level view of the tech industry, particularly the hiring aspect of it. Here are some quick takeaways from the discussion with Jeff. First, When companies talk about employees who add significant value, they're often referring to those who can solve very difficult tasks using their combination of skills and experience. These valuable employees often have a very deep understanding of a specific space. But they're also employees who are very good team members, who use their soft skills to make those around them more effective. When you're hiring, you can adjust your hiring process to try to find employees who have some combination of all these abilities. Second, some companies are moving away from referrals as a way to source talent. This can open the door to companies creating more inclusive teams, because they're drawing talent from all sorts of places. While steering away from referrals might mean it takes longer to make a hire, it could also result in stronger teams. Third, even though there's a lot of chatter right now about how AI will impact the hiring process, it's intensely important that human beings remain in the hiring loop. While AI could run a coding challenge or evaluate a technical answer to a question, you ultimately need human recruiters and hiring managers to figure out whether a candidate will fit in with the team, for example, or possess the ability to talk through concepts in an easy to understand way. That's it, folks. Thanks for listening. We covered a whole lot of other topics during the episode, of course, so give it a re-listen if there was something you missed. We'll see you next time. And remember, DICE is your best resource to find the tech talent you need to fill your open roles and, for tech pros, the best place to grow your tech career.